This is an ABC podcast. Hi there, welcome to The Philosopher's Zone with me, David Rutledge. This episode is one that really follows on thematically from last week's episode, when we had Agustin Fuentes talking about race and biology. That was an edited version of a presentation that he'd given at a recent conference on race in the modern world, hosted by Macquarie University's Ethics and Agency Research Centre. Well, also at that conference was today's guest. My name's Taylor J. McAllister. Most people call me TJ, and I'm a proud Wiradjuri woman. Um, My mob is from Ningen, New South Wales, um, and I grew up around Wiradjuri country, Ningen, Bathurst, Blaney, and I currently live on Durrick country um, and go to Macquarie University, which is also on Durrick country. I am a psychologist, and I'm also doing my PhD in philosophy. Taylor J. McAllister's presentation at the Race in the Modern World conference was on the legal definition of Aboriginality in Australia and what happens when a community has an identity thrust upon them which is colonialist in its orientation and grounded in the fiction of biological race. Let's talk about the philosophy. I mean, you're interested in identity and, of course, that has all sorts of interesting psychological aspect, political aspects, which we are going to get into. But what about your philosophical interest? Where does that lie? Uh, maybe just in terms of the philosophers that you're, you're drawing on. Yeah, so I think my interest in philosophy, because I did all of my formal training in psychology to become a psychologist, I think that philosophy gives us an avenue to really pull apart an issue that other disciplines don't allow us to. And that's what I was finding in my clinical work as a psychologist. I work with uh, young Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and their families in crisis specifically. And what I was finding is we were really coming up to um, a lot of issues with the way the processes that people had to be able to construct their identity. And so for me, philosophy was an avenue to you know, draw from um, thinkers, a lot of thinkers of colour, a lot of, um, you know, more traditional philosophers and to really pull apart the issue conceptually to see what other options we had. So I think, yeah, it really gave me a different perspective from what I had with psychology. And, of course, you gave this wonderful um, presentation at Macquarie University uh, a few weeks back where you were tying this work into Aboriginality and particularly biological definitions of race. Um, We heard about that a little bit on the program last week, but let's get into that a little bit more. I mean, first of all, just if we're talking about biological definitions of race, uh, sort of in the abstract, if you like, why are those wrong or, or misguided in your view? I guess the way that I would describe it is no matter how we discuss race and how we define it, what people understand as races are rooted in biological understandings of differences between the so-called races. And the closest thing to a scientific synonym is a subspecies. And scientists have shown many times that there are no human subspecies and hence no human races. So for me and for my work, um, I kind of take for granted that we've already done a lot of that work to show that race is not biological. 
because we know that most physical variation lies within racialized groups rather than um, between them. Right. And you also say that in Australia, the belief in race as a biological concept is more than just a misunderstanding of the science. And of course, this is not just in Australia, but certainly in Australia. You say that it's part of an identifiably colonial mindset. That's very interesting. In what way do you see that as as the case? The way that I frame it is through um, Omi and Winant's racial formation theory, where they they actually apply this in the US, but I think it's quite applicable to Australia. This idea that there are racial projects of um, particular times and that these racial projects will change, they'll ebb and flow based on the socio-historical context. And because Australia is a settler colonial state, we have what I would call a definitional project, a project to define Aboriginal people for the purposes of justifying the settler colony of so-called Australia. Okay, well, let's talk about that definition. I mean, we'll, we'll get further into that, that justification in a minute, but if we just look first of all at the definition itself, at the moment in, in Australia we have this three-pronged definition of Aboriginality um, introduced formally in the Aboriginal Land Rights Act of 1983. Tell me more about that. What is this definition? Yeah, so the, the definition came after hundreds and hundreds of definitions over time um, since invasion had been kind of given for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, and it came around uh, the late 70s. It was a working definition that was adopted by the federal cabinet and then um, put into legislation through the Land Rights Act in, I think, 1983. And so there was some community consultation in this definition and Differently to a lot of the previous definitions, which were just handed to Aboriginal people by colonists, this one had some, um, arguably some consultation, but the definition essentially is a three-part definition where a person is Aboriginal who is a member of the Aboriginal race of Australia, so that's the descent test, and then if they identify as Aboriginal and if they're accepted by the Aboriginal community as an Aboriginal person. So that's the three-pronged definition that we use today. We use it if someone needs to access services, if they need to, quote-unquote, prove their Aboriginality, this is the definition that they'd be drawing from. And as you've pointed out, parts two and three of the definition are fluid, flexible, however you might want to define it. But the first one, the descent test, is a fixed criterion. Um, Can you unpack that a little bit more? I mean, how does the descent test work? What exactly is it? Yeah, so the descent test or criterion A is, I would say, commonly considered to be the only essential criterion. And what I mean by that is, as you've mentioned, that the other two criterion they can change over time and they're also going to be quite influenced by how much someone meets the descent test in the first place. So, for example, a person might self-identify as Aboriginal, but their self-identification might be heavily influenced by whether or not they believe that they meet the first criteria, the descent test, and whether or not they're accepted by community is also influenced by the descent test. And so when the descent test is being applied, um, it is applied as a fixed 
criteria. So you either do or do not have Aboriginal descent. That's a very fixed criteria. There's no real um, ability to change throughout that. As seen, it is seen as an unchangeable um, fact. Right, and it's descent test sort of all the way back, if you like. It's it's about your parents being Aboriginal, their parents being Aboriginal, the, the degree of Aboriginality in your lineage. Is that what we're looking at here? Yeah, I think that's what it comes from. So the idea of degrees of Aboriginality is a colonial construct, but now um, it's just about whether or not you have a, a relative or an ancestor, living or dead, who um, was or is Aboriginal. There's a certain logic to this, of course, but you say that the descent test of the definition of Aboriginality is actually badly equipped and it's inappropriate in determining a person's Aboriginality. In in what ways? Yeah, so my main issues with the descent test, um, I have issues with the other two criterion as well, and that's something that I also address in my thesis. But my issues with criterion A is that it's very limited in the way that we can conceptualise what it means to be Aboriginal. So our available options for inclusion, exclusion are quite limited by colonial epistemologies because they were made by colonial authorities or they've derived from them. I also think when we put it into practice, it really comes up with um, a lot of problematic issues where we have to rely on outdated concepts of biological race. And I also highlight some real harms that this can cause within the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community um, for, you know, when we actually try and apply the descent test. And what are some of these harms, real-world harms? So I guess the the first harm would be... um, denying Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people's rights to self-determination, specifically as it pertains to their identities. I think that is a violation of of a right for Indigenous people. And I also think there are harms in terms of something that we discuss in the literature called lateral violence. I think it can lead to Aboriginal people internalising these concepts of biological race and that can lead to issues among our own communities. And of course, on top of that, the very obvious harm is that it can lead to the racialization of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people um, in the same vein or along the lines of colonist thoughts and notions about so-called race. Right. But on that issue of self-determination, I mean, you say you also have problems with the second and third criteria of the three-pronged definition. I mean, this one of... um, Aboriginality is being partly defined by one's acceptance into or by an Aboriginal community. That seems to incorporate a degree of self-determination there. What's wrong with that in your view? Yeah, so I would agree that it it incorporates a degree of self-determination, but it's not genuine. I would say a true, genuine attempt at self-determining our own identities would be a completely... Um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander-led definition and constructed definition. But what we actually have is a governmental definition thrust upon us for us to then work out between ourselves how we're going to apply it. So there really isn't much ability for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to reject that definition or 
discuss that definition. This is our definition and we must apply it as we see fit. The Australian historian Patrick Wolfe has written about what he calls the logic of elimination that he sees as having driven the project of settler colonialism since its inception. Tell me about the logic of elimination and how the imposition of a biological notion of Aboriginal identity has been part of that logic. Yeah, so I think Patrick Wolfe's work on the logic of elimination talks a lot about the reason that Aboriginal people have been defined so heavily over time. And in essence, the logic of elimination means that settler colonial states, in order to justify their invasion, they need to construct an idea or an image of Indigenous people as being a dying race who are inevitably doomed to die out. And this was actually done through biological and cultural assimilation. So the biological In the biological sense, the idea that Aboriginal people are different biologically was a real, I guess, force for the Stolen Generation, for a lot of the policies in the assimilation era, and also was a driving force for some of the early policies, um, paternalistic policies, where Aboriginal people were considered to be biologically different. Right. And so the biological difference then is not just something that exists in a, a sort of a, you know, a normative vacuum, if you like. It's, it's something that's seen as pathological and, it, and needs, to be, needs to be addressed through, through assimilation or through breeding out. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the idea of breeding out the Aboriginality was really commonplace throughout our settler colonial history. And Aboriginality has been defined almost out of existence. I think that is one of the the ideas or the the ways forward from a colonial mindset is to define Aboriginal people out of existence so that that then justifies the settler colonial state. This is The Philosopher's Zone on Radio National and the ABC Listen app. I'm David Rutledge and my guest this week is Taylor J. McAllister, who's a PhD candidate at Macquarie University in Sydney. We're talking about the ins and outs of Aboriginal identity in Australia. You've done some really interesting work on what happens when an Aboriginal person comes into contact with the legal system and there's a a sort of negotiation of their Aboriginality that takes place. Tell me more about what happens there. Something that I found was I was looking at some of the seminal cases that discuss Aboriginality and there's quite a lot of cases. Whenever someone's Aboriginality was, you know, up for debate, um, we would see the way that judges would interpret and apply the dissent test. And I think something that I found really interesting was that even when judges were trying to decenter biological race or they would acknowledge that there's no evidence base for the concept of so-called races, they would at the same time end up referring to it. So there would be this very odd situation where judges would, yeah, both denounce race and then explicitly or implicitly refer to it. In what ways? What, what sort of references are they making there? In many ways, it can be from explicit where judges would rely on photographs and comment on a person's Aboriginality or their perceived Aboriginality. 
It could be as explicit as referring to things like being mixed race or the the percentage of someone's blood, but it could also be implicit or what I would call a proxy for, for biological race, where they would use these terms like being mixed or talking about genes, genetics, um, these kind of physical markers that are associated with biological race but are somewhat adjacent. Um, yeah. That's so weird. So, so judges are using these, as, as you say, either proxies for biological race, you know, race-adjacent terms in their comments, references to racial subgroups, the blood quantum – but at the same time, as making these references, they are referring to the lack of scientific evidence for biological race. So, I mean, why does this happen? You know, judges aren't unusually stupid people. What's, what's going on there? Yeah, and, and I think you're right. I think that even when the judges were aiming to decenter biological race and to, to do the right thing and they were consulting with communities um, and aware of the scientific consensus on so-called race, I think what was happening here is a limitation in the epistemologies that we use to construct and navigate Aboriginality. So, these judges were restricted in their ability to even conceptualize other ways of knowing and being. And so this is what happens, a true conceptual limitation where at best judges were referring to proxies for biological race and at worst they were straight up relying on biological realism about race. So it's like no matter how intelligent you are, well-intentioned, well-educated, it sounds like you're saying that this notion of biological race is so deeply embedded in our, well, all our systems, but certainly our legal systems, that it's it's sort of impossible, uh, unless through some superhuman effort of, of intellectual will to avoid falling into it. Yeah, I would say even with that superhuman effort in intellectual will, unless we have a different framework to draw from, we are always inevitably in a settler colonial state going to rely on these notions of biological race because this is the framework of our society and has been for a long time. But as you've pointed out, these debates around the authenticity of people's claims to their own Aboriginality based on dissent these are taking place within Indigenous communities, not just non-Indigenous ones. I mean, how do you how do you see this? Is this a sort of internalised colonialism? Yeah, so so it's called lateral violence among the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander literature, and we can see it happening in many Indigenous groups in settler colonial states. So lateral violence essentially means one person from a member of an oppressed group targeting someone laterally um, who's also in the same group. And often it happens in, in many ways, but what I'm interested in is that challenge to someone's authenticity um, or questioning someone's identity. And often it is linked to their ability to meet the dissent test or the dissent criteria. We know that it happens. Um, there's been lots of research about it. A lot of my research looks at the harms to people's identity when this does happen. But I think you're right. The reason that this happens is because there's an internalization of these colonial epistemologies and ways of considering and constructing so-called race. And 
that's all we've been given to work with when it comes to legal Aboriginality. And if that clashes with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander epistemologies, we're encouraged to prioritise the, the Western definition. And so I think that's where the clash occurs. Yeah, that's such an interesting comment when you say that that's all we've been given to work with. It, it, sort of, it, it makes me want to ask, well, what did Aboriginal people work with before colonisation? But then, of course, there was no concept of indigeneity there, right? You need, <laughs> you know, you need the other for that. Mm. Yeah, I think, I think the, there's a particular issue with the three-pronged definition because there are other ways of negotiating Aboriginality. But what the three-tier model does is it relies on Aboriginal people policing each other from within. Um, the government has essentially handed us this colonial definition and asked us to apply this ourselves, regardless of whether or not we agree with it. Um, but Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have many ways of relating to each other, defining ourselves. Um, a lot of people in the literature talk about relationality. So this idea of, you know, situating yourself not in an individualistic um, sense and saying, you know, I'm TJ and I'm a psychologist, but instead talking about I'm TJ and this is where I'm from, this is who I know, who I'm related to, and this is my responsibility and my role in this society. So it's a very different way of approaching identity, but because there's no reason to um, actually define that apart from these administrative purposes, it hasn't really taken off in terms of a legal definition. Right. So how would you describe then the purpose of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in coming up with their own definition of identity? I mean, obviously the logic here is not elim eliminationist, but w what is the logic? Is, is, is it a kind of resistance to, to that system that's been handed to you? Yeah, I think there's many different purposes and they, and they change over time. But I, I guess originally we have had for many generations um, ways of defining ourselves and they're quite existentially meaningful. Um, you know, our cultural identities provide us with a sense of belonging um, and a place within our society. I work as a psychologist with, with social and emotional well-being, so this holistic concept of the relationship with yourself, your connection with your mob, your family, your spirituality and other concepts that just can't be conceptualised by colonial epistemologies. And I think that would be the, the general broad purpose of why Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people define ourselves in relation to each other. But I guess as we have gone on and we've had these definitions thrust upon us, there is also that sense of resistance, right? So Indigenous identities today are shaped by pre-existing factors and their interaction with settler colonialism. So because we, are, we have experienced colonisation, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities have had to become more adaptable to the impacts of settler colonialism and especially these assimilationist policies to be able to account for people who are genuinely Aboriginal but may not be able to meet one of these criterion because that's seen as quite a big harm for someone to be rejected or refused from their identity. 
And so what you're talking about here is a, a kind of flexibility or, or fluidity maybe. But my philosophical training, such as it is, has been very much about the ways in which identity and the self are constructs that are shaped by a number of cultural forces. And, you know, it's hard to ground any aspect of myself in something fixed or permanent. And that can be very liberating, but it can also be difficult if you want to have a politics that's linked to identity. So that perceived need for fixed identity, identity as a sort of anchor for political action, is that a live issue within Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities? And maybe what are the outlines of that debate? Yeah, I think there are a lot of discussions about the need for a fixed definition or a fixed criterion so that people are able to um, gain access to services and, you know, things like Aboriginal identified jobs or scholarships or even accessing healthcare or dental services that are targeted for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. But I suppose when I think about these uh, systemic issues, I think about the purposes of limiting that to a so-called race-based policy. I think it's more important to either, maybe I'm being too idealistic, but either widen the net and the scope of these policies so that people are able to access them, whether or not they can meet that criteria, or find a better way to target the people who you think need to receive those services. I'm interested in the issue of um, phenotype and appearance, you know, what people are getting at when they talk about whether or not someone looks Aboriginal, the uh, the Andrew Bolt test, if you like. I mean, you mentioned in your talk that, that there is a colonialist fear of Aboriginal people who appear European and have access to the privileges of that appearance. That, that's very interesting. Tell me more about that. Yeah, so I think Andrew Bolt and those 2000, I think it was 2009 or 2008 articles, when they came out, it represented this colonial fear of people who are falsely identifying as Aboriginal and are benefiting from the privileges of passing as white, but also benefiting from, as he would say, the perceived privileges of being Aboriginal. And I think towards the end of the late 19th century, the British Empire was becoming increasingly concerned with what they would call the half-caste problem. This is light-skinned Aboriginal people who would claim an Aboriginal identity. They were a threat to the aims of assimilation policies. For Aboriginal identity to become extinct, half-caste children were supposed to not associate with Aboriginal people. So, you know, the, the colonist idea would be why would they, as this is not considered to be something that they would choose if they had the option because of all these racist ideas about white superiority. But despite the interventions that they tried to biologically and culturally assimilate Aboriginal children, many Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children still longed to identify with their Aboriginality and they wanted to be associated with their families and so they weren't able to become successors of these policies that wanted to rid them of their identity. So I think the concept of um, a light-skinned Aboriginal person who looks for all intents and purposes or is racialized as white but asserts an Aboriginal identity, I think that's a resistance to these policies and a threat to the defining Indigenous people out of existence. 
Taylor J. McAllister, TJ to her friends. She's in the School of Psychological Sciences and the Department of Philosophy and the Department of Indigenous Studies at Macquarie University in Sydney. Very busy woman. If you'd like to find out more about her very interesting work, then check out the Philosopher's Zone website for some links. And if you'd like to listen to this or any of our other episodes again, the ABC Listen app is your one-stop shop for this and all of our great Radio National content. Get into it. I'm David Rutledge. Thanks for your company this week, and I hope you can join me next time right here in the Philosopher's Zone. Bye for now.